There was just all these little moments in rehab that were such big learn. In 28 days, I learned so much. Don't talk shit. Don't gossip. Don't steal anymore. Have a gratitude practice. Be grateful for hot water. It was a really valuable lesson. Just, I learned so much in that short time. I was just so determined and so grateful that my experience in rehab was so freeing and happy that I knew when I got out, I was like, I never have to drink again. And I haven't 11 years later, but I do a lot of stuff to, to, to have gotten there. Green lights and blue skies are on their way. Yeah, they're on their way. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining Crosstalk, the South Florida edition. We are the number one recovery podcast in the world and universe. I don't know who rated us, but hmm. I told you so. <laughs> Subscribe, like, please comment. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. We want to hear it. We can take criticism well, too. So today I have an amazing woman who's been pivotal in my recovery. I met her seven years ago, last November. And, um, you know, I was told to call you and that you would be someone that could support me. And you did the whole time. So thank you so much. You picked me up every morning and we do things together. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful to you. So I'm excited for you to share your story. Oh, thank you, Irene. Um, thanks for having me. And, uh, yeah, I just, I remember those days when you would call me and I was always going through something and I would be like, thank you for calling me. Cause I, it was just kind of a bit uncanny when you would call. Um, yeah. So my name is Nancy. Um, I am an alcoholic and, um, a little bit about me. I grew up in Connecticut, Stanford, Connecticut in, a in the seventies. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a time when it was a bit crazy, like a bit Parents, there was no helicopter parenting back in those days. You know, your parents didn't really know where you were. You'd be gone for days with the station wagon and there was no cell phones. And it was kind of a really fun, free time. But, um, you know, everybody, you know, kind of just did whatever they wanted to do back in those days. There was no hovering. There was no um, checking in. Um, and, you know, I guess my, you know, Everyone kind of smoked weed on the bus in those days and um, in school. And it was it was a crazy, crazy time to grow up. I Nowadays, I just don't think it's like that. I know there are drugs around in schools, but man, it was it was just it was it was the Wild West back in those days. Wow. And um, uh, there was a few ominous warnings about my future spiral into addiction for example like getting kicked off all the sports teams for smoking weed that was a couple um you know yeah. that was a little bit of a you know I was a really good athlete um crashing my parents station wagon totally drunk um and you know it was weird because my brothers our house was actually raided by the police when I was really young i was like 12 and i had started smoking weed and when the cops were searching my room i got really upset because my brothers were like go around and see where the police are blah 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 and um i was like thought i was all cool checking out where the cops were like they're in your room now they found the weed blah 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 but then when they were in my room i got really hysterical 
and thought I was going to like go to jail because I had a roach in my toy safe. <laughs> so funny. Um, and a cop actually asked me to open the piggy bank toy safe. I'm like, really? You can't figure out how to open this toy safe? Whatever. It was so ridiculous. Um, but anyway, so moving on, you know, I, I went off to college. And after that happened, I did swear, like, oh, I was never going to get involved in any kind of drugs or anything like that after what I saw happen to my brothers. And, um, of course, that was not the case. I went to school in New Haven, Connecticut. I went to college. And, again, it was the 80s. And it was a wild time to be in just, we got hit with a big snowstorm and I'm not talking about the cold kind. <laughs> there was a lot of uh, cocaine started flooding our country, as you guys know, um, in the 80s. And it was a really just, it was everywhere and didn't really get that involved in cocaine in college. Um, but there was a lot of other drugs going around in college. I mean, this is a recovery podcast, so I'm going to kind of talk about how that Kind of, I mean, it hadn't gotten a real hold of me yet. You know, there was a lot of speed back then, a lot of quaaludes. Um, everyone was doing mushrooms. You know, we would go to concerts completely wrecked at the New Haven Coliseum. And it was a wild, wild time. We'd go down to the city. Oh, my God, the limelight. It was just it was just oh my God. a wild time. The, the 80s limelight. in New York. I mean, you guys know, you know, it was just... Uh, I don't know if which was worse, the 70s or the 80s, but I did end up graduating college, barely, and um, I was, I got involved, so I did find a job right out of college, and, um, but I had moved in with my friend, my best friend in Greenwich, and we got involved with this drug dealer, um, and he would come over to our house all the time, and it was... It got bad. It got really bad. And that was like, early, that was uh, 1986, 87. And the cocaine was just everywhere. We, I got to know some Colombians um, and they would just give you whatever you needed. And we would try and sell it, but not very successfully. And um, was yeah. it because you were doing it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Doing a lot of it. <laughs> and um, it got pretty dark then, you know, I mean, and that was, and I didn't, no, I didn't get sober till 2012. So you can imagine the many years that follow that of just kind of dabbling, but I hadn't really. Did you have any consequences back then? Not really. I mean, I feel like some kind of divine energy was watching out for me because there, there were times where when we lived in Greenwich, it was right near the Westchester airport. We would literally this guy would come over at like three in the morning. We would peer out our window all paranoid. You know when you're all paranoid and you like think something's what? There was actually an undercover cop actually surveilling our house. So when you would look out the window, you, you know, you think you're imagining things, but there was actually a cop watching us. So I was like, this isn't good. But the fact that we didn't get raided is so amazing. And our poor landlady, she was downstairs and she was just like these kids. Oh my God. We just had people coming and going all hours of the night. Um, but it's, I haven't talked about that time in a long time, but... Um, I was showing up to work super tired, obviously staying up all night. I, I would, there were times where I'd be asleep in the conference room on the conference table at this job. It was an accounting firm and I was like, this is not good. Um, so not really knock on wood. I mean, we, we got pulled over so many times, you know, going down to the hood in Stanford, um, driving the police would pull us over i mean there were so many instances more than i could count where we would get stopped by the police and 
we somehow got away with it. Probably, I don't know, you know, white girls, whatever. I mean, sad yeah. to say, white privilege. But anyway, um, so uh, I ended up moving out of that apartment and I moved down to, um, I got another job in a marketing company and I moved to this part of Stanford called Japan. And I was working for this marketing company because I had a degree in marketing and um, I got involved in local politics and um, still kind of, I was doing okay at that point. I kind of had gotten it together a little bit, you know, not really completely out of control. And I, uh, I got involved in politics and I was at a fundraiser and that's where I met my husband. Um, and uh, we started seeing each other and um, this poor guy, I mean, I was going to work every day and everything and things were okay. But there was one time where I think I was supposed to meet his mom and dad and he came over to pick me up and it was, I was not right. I mean, I was completely kind of drunk, high and, you know, we almost broke up. But a long story short, I did end up staying with this man. He's still my husband. I don't know how, God bless him. Um, and uh, we started a family. It was really nice. We moved up to a little town in Stanford I mean, in Connecticut called Shelton, and we bought a little house. We ended up having three children. Um, and um, I started to, when I, I was drinking and smoking weed, but being still a really good mom, pretty high-functioning mom at that point, but once in a while, I would still get cocaine. And it, there were consequences from that because Kurt would know he could tell, you know, right. and it wasn't like I could really hide it anymore. It was weird. I would go into a bit of a, my, something happened to my brain where I just didn't, I couldn't really function anymore when I was on it. Like I used to be able to kind of hide it, but he would know right away. And it started to become a bit of an issue again. It was funny how it flared up later on, you know, in my, in the eighties, fine, no kids, single partying, all good. That's kind of fun. I had a lot of good times, you know, in my twenties. Yeah. Uh, but then when you're a mom and you have three little kids to take care of and you're still trying to let, and you're starting to still do drugs by yourself, you're not at a club and you kind of have to look at that and maybe you have a little bit of a problem, but it hadn't become the rapacious creditor yet. So um, were you hiding it from him? Well, it was more like binge using, you know, he would go out of town, but there were times where I would use it and he would be able to tell. So, you know, um... It hadn't taken a real hold yet, but there were times where he's like, I could tell. Like, you're not drunk or stoned on weed. You're on something else. So, um, anyway, uh, yeah, that was, you know, I was still pretty present. And then what happened was um, we moved out of that house and into another house. And um, things went on. And I was, you know, a stay-at-home mom. It was great. I actually went back to school. I got my master's. And... Um, I was doing pretty well, but it's funny in the back of my mind, I still was, you know, still smoking weed and drinking, but really high functioning, good mom, went back to school. And then, um, and then it's funny. I had three C-sections. This is where opiates get introduced into the picture. I had three C-sections. It was weird. I had the pills in the cabinet, could take them or leave them alone. Wasn't really mm -hmm. addicted at that point. And then I'll never forget it. One of my softball games, cause I was on a softball team, um, an older woman handed me a Percocet and that was it. I became something in my brain. I, I had snapped and I became addicted to pills 
And um, that's when my journey in real spiral into addiction kind of started. And um, I became completely addicted to opiates. And I almost substituted the cocaine addiction for this opiate addiction. And it mm -hmm. became... It became a struggle. I mean, getting them, having enough of them, um, it just, it's just so sad what you will do to, when you run out, you don't feel well, you feel sick, you feel tired. And um, yeah, that went on for years. And then, you know, finally it became pretty apparent. Then kind of, you know, the progression, like to talk about the progression of the disease, because, you know, over a slow period of time, I slowly descended into Hades, right. you know, hell. And it took many, many years. And I'm grateful for all of that, because maybe I wouldn't be sober if I didn't go into hell, because when you escape from hell, you're like, oh my God, I made it out alive. This is amazing. I had to do everything I did to get where I am today. Um, but now I'm like... 45 years old my kids are teenagers and it's now i'm doing cocaine i've got the pills i'm drinking a ton can your kids tell they knew you know they 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 were pretty smart it was i was talking to one of them today and she's like i could kind of tell when i was pretty young she she was like there were times where you were really messed up but she's like i understand it it's a progressive disease because i explained that to her um but then it became like every day you know, I'd be at the dinner table and I never knew that was called nodding out, but I'd be like half asleep and the mm. kids would be like, mom, mom, mom. And, um, finally, you know, uh, my husband said to me, no, this is like 2011, 2012. I mean, I'm so thin. The things I'm doing are just so unconscionable and stuff I would never do sober, obviously, like making my son miss his train because I'm too messed up to get him to the Amtrak. Um, you know, showing up at places where I shouldn't be under the influence, you know, really just those spiritual loss of values to this day haunt me. Um, but I was sick, very mm -hmm. sick. And finally, what also haunts me is when I was faced with the choice to go to rehab or never see my family again, um, there was a hesitation, right. like a pause. Cause, and that haunts me because, wow, you know. How did you get to that situation, having to make the choice? Who well, finally my husband was like, we could tell you're totally messed up. Like, you either get help or we're done. Like, and just the pause, that moment of where I was like, because mm. I, I had a lot of fear. That's normal. I mean, yeah. when we're, when you're addicted to something, you know, it's your thing. Like, don't take that away from me. I right. will fight you tooth and nail. Right. We'll hide it. We'll, you know, do so many things. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm, I know it may haunt you, but it's also, I mean, I know you've also must have forgiven yourself and, and you know that that was the influence, not really you. Of course. Well, it's the devil, literally right. the devil. Right. And But when I think about that, you know, that's I've I've shared that before in meetings, et cetera, that um, you know, you the the way the disease has you almost ready to throw away everything you hold most dear. Mm. Your family, your parents, your grandma, everything for that, mm. that's really spooky. And I share that a lot because it's just so cunning, baffling, and powerful. And finally I did make I did make the decision to go get help. Thank God. And, um, 
yeah, it was the best decision I ever made. And I went to a 28-day treatment center in, um, in Texas. I love your stories from this treatment center. And, and we're so similar, so. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't sure I could live without alcohol. I was really nervous. I was so addicted to it and the pills. And um, it was such a progression. I love that part of my story because it's so interesting. And that's all over um, our program, the progression of the disease. And that's what happened. But it took me, some people just are real quick. They get sober young. And that's just not my story. And um, I did go to a 28-day rehab and they gave me a taper and I slept for three days. And um, when I woke up, I felt pretty good. And I like, my brain started to wake up and I didn't feel too bad. I felt free for the first time in mm. so many years. Like, and I just, I'll never forget thinking to myself, like, I can do this. Yeah. I can do this. I'm laughing. I'm having fun. Um, ask what a taper is? Oh, yeah. They gave me Suboxone for three days. I don't even know. That's like to, if you're coming off opiates, it's so you don't get really sick. Okay. It's an opiate in itself, okay. but it's made to, just as addictive, just as everything. But if mm. it's monitored... Um, and used to actually taper off, meaning they give you an amount, then they give you less, then they give you less mm. till you're finally off it. Because opiate opiates are are really hard. They get people who are not even addicts, mm -hmm. you know? And it's one of the hardest things, as we've now seen with these movies and shows on Hulu and HBO right. and all those channels about this family put that put it out there and knew that it was so horribly addictive that it, it got the doctors, it got everyone. Um, so this is a drug that the same company that put out the original medication put out. Really? Yeah, yeah. I think so, I'm pretty okay. sure. I'm yeah. not positive, but. Uh. So, you, so, you, so you took the, so they tapered you and then you slowly started to kind of, you said breathe. I came back so, to life. Yeah. Yeah, after three days. That's pretty good because they keep other people on it for a long time. Terrible, it just, you just get addicted to that. I didn't want to stay on it. You, so you felt better physically and mentally, or was it first? Yeah, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I felt pretty good. What was going through your mind? That I felt free. Like, spiritually? Well, I mean, yeah, I just felt good. I felt free for the first time. I felt joy. I, I mean, also, don't forget, coming off opiates, opiates suppress the natural production of serotonin and dopamine. So a lot of opiate addicts feel a little depressed their first six months. And I did go through a little post-acute withdrawal. It's called PAUSE. Um, you know, every three, they explained, it was such a great rehab. They explained everything, how your brain has to reconnect in the back because the two little things get separated. They had like a neuroscientist come in and explain that. Give your chance, you know, yourself a chance to heal. So I started doing a little jogging at the rehab. I started eating better. It's very, very thin, mm. like you. Mm. Um, and uh, I just have the fondest memories of this rehab. You know, it was really ordinary. There were kids right off the street. There were nurses. Somebody brought a guitar. Um, I was always caught smoking in the men's smoking area because the women were kind of dramatic. So I just like to hang out with the guys because we'd like throw chestnuts at each other and flick cigarette butts at each other. And we just had, and everyone had each other's back. We would like scrounge for cigarette butts in the can. And 
Um, it was an amazing experience. And I have been, I have heard too that, I mean, I've only went, been to one rehab, knock on wood, um, as so has you, so is Irene, but people who go back out after period of sobriety get worse really quickly. It's progressive. And, you don't pick, you pick up where you left off. Yeah. And I heard that people get sick much faster and I haven't knock on wood had to experience that. Um, but I felt free for the first time at this rehab. I had so much fun. I was a handful too. Let me tell you, they were always catching me. I toilet papered the whole men's smoking area because it was mischief night. I don't know if you know what that is, but in Connecticut, we the night before Halloween, we have mischief night. Where we you call eat. it cabbage night. Yeah. And I just, I confessed to the crime and I had to take all the toilet paper down. I was literally, I was just in How such joy. I don't know. I was just throwing them everywhere. I even did it to the therapist's office. Oh Wait, God. but the story that I love the most is your Sharpie story. Oh, well, that was kind of a pivotal moment for me. As one of my friends says a lot, we always make fun of them for saying pivotal moment, but um, I used to shoplift a lot because I could just get away with it. And I didn't have any regard for anybody else's stuff. And I was so selfish and self-centered and could have cared less. Which just to be clear is its own addiction. Shoplifting is a process addiction right. that many people pick up after they put mm -hmm. drugs down. So this is why I love because this Because so it much. dings, it dings a receptor. You get a little, it's kind of like gambling or scratch off tickets yep. or shopping or sex. You get Eating a little disorder. Yeah, and um, I had this really nice lady who was always cashing in my quarters for my laundry, this really sweet Latino lady, because there was a lot of Latinos there. It was Texas. Um, and I um, was cashing in my quarters all the time, and I asked her to borrow a Sharpie, and um, I just kept it. So I was like, I like the Sharpie, and I need it. I need it. I want it. And um, there was something in my brain that clicked, like, you're sober now, and you're still going to steal from people. It's just not okay. So it was kind of like a turning point. There were a few turning points for me in rehab where my brain, um, they also, you know, my brain started to be like, wait, you can't keep doing the same thing sober that you were doing using because then it's just you're not following any. I just was really superstitious too. And another turning point for me was when I was, um, I had just done my laundry and I was outside. I had been playing basketball and um, I came into my humble little room. It was like kind of a dorm setup. And um, I had just washed my towels and I took a hot shower and I was so grateful for the water coming out of the thing mm -hmm. and my clean towel. And I had like all my little, you know, toiletries that I, I brought my own towels to rehab though. Cause you know, I'm bougie like that. Right. So, <laughs> um, but there was just a couple of moments. And one thing that really helped me was was at the rehab they at night they had us write gratefuls which is a little slip i was like what's that what's gratefuls because you know i'm such a brat um i always thought i was such a good person but i was so selfish and self-centered you know and it would be like you would write what you were grateful for on this little slip of paper and then we would go around the room and read every you know everyone would read what they wrote and it instilled in me from early days of recovery a gratitude practice mm -hmm. which i still have today one and, of the most important things that we can have. And you don't even have to be in recovery to have a gratitude practice. That's and people right. who have a gratitude practice are actually much more stable and happy mm -hmm. in general. And another thing that happened to me in rehab, which is really uncanny and weird, is I had um, someone had to pack my suitcase because my best friend Olga, because I was too messed up to pack it. And I, of course, packed some photos of my children and everything. And in those photos was a, was a prayer to the great spirit. It's a Native American prayer that was written in the 1800s. And I was like, then I packed this really neat Native American ring that I wore the whole rehab. And, um, you know, I thought I was gonna like bury it in this 
cool desert of Texas and I was going to be all spiritual. <laughs> and um, I'm really grateful for that because, you know, part of being sober is you have to start praying. And I stumbled across this prayer in my stuff. And that's just such a God shot because I had this really beautiful prayer that I still say 11 years later every morning in my stuff. So at the rehab, I started reading this Native American prayer every morning and unrolling my little cigarettes. And I would go, and I would blow the tobacco to the spirits because I was like that, you know. And um, I would, because I couldn't sleep. I was mm -hmm. up at 4.30 in the morning walking around. Um, and I don't know, I just started really, I kept it really simple in rehab. And I made a ton of friends. And um, we all just, oh, another thing. <laughs> I was like gossiping and talking shit in rehab and I got caught. That was another turning point. Like, you're going to talk shit and gossip? Can't do that anymore. There was just all these little moments in rehab that were such big learn. In 28 days, I learned so much. Don't talk shit. Don't gossip. Don't steal anymore. Have a gratitude practice. Be grateful for hot water. There are people all over the world that don't That's even right. have hot water or a freaking toilet or a place to sleep. Um, and back a lot and like reflecting on a lot of the stuff you were doing, did you feel like you were conscious at all about what you were doing? You just kind of, yeah, I was, I was, cause I was awake. I was in an awakened state of mind for the first time in a really, really long time. Mm -hmm. And I mean conscious before conscious. So like the, well, great, the grateful thing and, and, um, like gossiping, like you knew that you shouldn't be doing that, but for some reason you, you would still do it. Were you conscious about what you were doing? Well, it was funny when I did it, um, you know, I, it, it came, it came back to me. Like it, people were like, why did you say that? But I was like, Oh, that girl relapsed. Um, it's just, just talking shit about some girl that was there. And it turned out she hadn't relapsed. And I had started some, cause I, you know, somebody else told me and then I told somebody else. And it was a really valuable lesson. Just, I learned so much in that short time. Like don't start causing chaos and stirring the pot. Don't steal, be kind, help others. Um, and that's what I started doing. Like my friend Justin, who had got dropped off with a pack of cigarettes, um, I would buy cartons for him and then he would, he had no money and then he would sell them and I just let him keep the money because he had no money. And that kid is still sober, knock on wood, today because I see him on Facebook. Oh, and I was, and he would always call himself a junkie and I'd be like, and he, I'd be like, Justin, he was like 23. I'm like, where are we going today? And he's like, come on, we got group at 11. And I was like, okay. I was like, not really well, you know, at the time. But um, he looked out for me, took care of me. And I got out of there. And what I did was um, I got home. I'll never forget, it was Thanksgiving. And I got home just in time to go to Thanksgiving at my parents. And they all had like an alcohol-free Thanksgiving. But meanwhile, I would like peer outside and everybody was in the driveway smoking weed and drinking Bud Light. And I was like, guys, I don't care. Like I, I didn't, it didn't bother me. It was weird. The obsession, the obsession had been removed immediately. I had no desire to drink or use. I was really, really lucky with that. Yeah. A lot of people come out and they have a lot of cravings and mm -hmm. they want to use or they're thinking about it. I was like, no way. I was just so determined mm -hmm. and so grateful that my experience in rehab was so freeing and happy that I knew when I got out, I was like, I never have to drink again, and I haven't. Eleven years later, um, but Amazing. I do a lot of stuff to 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 have gotten there. So that's what I want to know. So okay, 
I want you to talk about early sobriety for you okay. also and what you started doing and how that has evolved into what you do today. Because I, I know that, you know, I see you doing kind of the same stuff from when I met you. Mm -hmm. You were, I think, four years sober when I met you. Okay. And, yeah, because I'm seven, you're 11. Um, and you still... You know, pick girls up, do mm -hmm. service for others, do all of you help so many women. I mean, your name resonates everywhere. So tell me, like, how you what, what how it started and how it's evolved. Okay, well, um, when I got out of rehab, I was still living in Connecticut at the time, and my youngest daughter was in France at school, um, for high school, and we. I started going to meetings right away down the hill from my house in Connecticut. And that's another God shot. Like how convenient was that? I had to just trundle down this hill to go to this little meeting in a church. How convenient. I had to trundle. I, I, yeah, trundle. I didn't have to freaking <laughs> schlep 25 minutes, literally down the hill. And it was very small meeting, but I started going there right away. And I wasn't too, people tell me, they're like, you were like all skinny and shaky and scared. And I was like, I was told to start as soon as you got home to start going to meetings. And that's what I did. And, um, and I went every day, I went every morning. And even, even when it was like 10 degrees outside, I would go outside with my little scarf and hat. And, um, I would look up at the stars on my deck in Connecticut and say my little great spirit prayer and like mm. still blow the tobacco to the spirits. And I got another prayer in rehab out of this witch book that I still, and then my friend, Matt, who was like half Comanche, wrote me a prayer, and I still say those same three prayers every day. I know day. them. <laughs> yep, every day I still say those same three prayers. But I ended up, this is kind of another uncanny total example of God and synchronicity and the great spirit of the universe because I ended up renting a house in Highland Beach because Susie was down here with Debbie, my sister-in-law, who lived in Boynton Beach. And um, I was like, Debbie, you know, where do I go? And she's like, there's some great meetings down at crossroads club yeah and uh, i was like what's that and i tootled on over to crossroads club your, from Beach. your vocabulary is yeah. killing me and <laughs> um in my little car and i didn't know it was soul and it was a 7 a.m meeting and um i started going to that meeting and it's magical in January, I guess, Jan we were renting this house on the beach. Cammy was away. There was nobody in my house in Connecticut. I think Connor might have been living there at the time, but um, he was, you know, out of college. And he, he had the whole house in Connecticut to himself. He didn't mind. Um, and uh, it was just like a fresh start. It was good, you know, just to get. But I, and then, well, we rented this house on the beach and I started going to the 7 a.m. And then I did go back. I moved back to Connecticut. Cammy did her senior year. In New Haven, at her at her school in Connecticut. So I spent um, kind of my first year and a half of recovery at the house in Connecticut, and totally stayed sober in the house with every you know. And um, I was kind of proud of myself because a lot of people go back home and they kind of just don't do it. I started going to my meetings up there, and then she ended up going off to UC Berkeley, and uh, we just moved to Florida. We sold our house in Connecticut, and then. Did you feel like being? Like living there and going to the meetings, the location helped you? Being in Connecticut? Yeah, I Connecticut. Yeah, well, I was really grateful to be sober in that house. I loved that house. And, of course, I had to go to my meetings, you know, and I found a sponsor up there. Well, um, you were given a plan, right? A plan of action to take. 
And you followed it, right? Well, they say, you know, drop your bags when you get out of rehab and go to a meeting. Like a lot of people don't have a plan when they get out. They're like, what do I do? Where do I go? It's like, if you're told to go to a meeting and start, find a sponsor, if you want to stay sober, that's what you're going to do. And that's what I did. I mean, I followed directions, good or good orderly direction, God, G-O-D. Mm-hmm. Um, and then anyway... I did end up moving to Florida full time and that's where my service, there's not a ton of service opportunities in Connecticut, but just stumbling across Florida. And then when I bought my house in Delray Beach, I was like, it was just crazy. I didn't know that this is recovery copy. I had no idea that it was so much recovery down here. I just happened to move down here um, and started going to Crossroads Club. And that's when I met that uh, really kind of, a, she was kind of a character. She was from Karen Renaissance. Um <laughs> That girl who's from L.A., she was like in the movie business. She was a trip. She's like, can you start picking us up? I was like, sure. And I would um, zip over to Renaissance and I started picking girls up there. That was like 20, that was you 2013. pick up girls. And you're not even, right. an, um, I always say a graduate of. <laughs> I know, I'm an honorary Karen grad. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And, and it's an incredible place. I mean, I, it. You know, the fact that they allow you to go out in the community and make these supports, if I hadn't had the chance to meet you, right. I don't know if I would be here today. You know, it's all synchronous. Totally. Exactly. I mean, I'll never forget meeting you. Oh, my God. That was fun. I remember that. I just, I remember that day. So to say, I remember the car I had. I even remember what I was wearing when I met you. And you were like, can you be my son? Oh, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. But. That's okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> anyway, so that's when, you know, my my service really picked up like giving people rides and um you know I, I found a sponsor down here at the wayside treatment center yeah. hannah she's still my sponsor today she lives in utah and um we did the steps and um i started sponsoring other girls and that you know that has really been just so impactful because i always tell women when i'm meeting with them how much they're helping me yeah you know I also feel that when I'm helping others, whether it's through sponsorship or, you mm-hmm. know, just being a support, like yeah, a friend. Of course. Um, seeing the transformation mm-hmm. in people from when they first, you know, either get out of detox or rehab or, you know, and then seeing as getting a little better and getting a little better and then struggling and then picking it back up. And we still struggle even years later, but watching people like pick it up and just do the right thing and your life just changes everything all these blessings come into your life and it's just so beautiful to me seeing the transformation of people and seeing how you know whether it is a 12-step program or rehab whatever you do um that makes you get there as long as you're there and you're not picking up a drink or a drug that's really the goal right well, it's funny you use that word transformation because it's all over our literature, but also you liter- people literally transform before your very eyes because they come in a bit sickly looking, mm-hmm. pale, yeah, not well. But also in their actions. Right, and you see them physically transform too. That's kind of cool. They yeah. start to have this inner glow and you're like, that's am- I mean, I've seen, so, to me, that's a spiritual experience, seeing people transform. And it's all about the action, behavior, all Absolutely. of that, you know, common sense becomes uncommon sense. All these little things we learn. Um, yeah. But you always would tell me that it's about the psychic change. Right. And that's when I was in treatment and 
I'm sitting on my little balcony smoking my little cigarettes and I said, oh my God, I have to change. But it was almost the best epiphany mm -hmm. because I did have to change and I almost needed a brainwashing. So they say, oh, I don't want to be brainwashed, but I needed that. Me and too. I'm so happy I got that mm -hmm. because, you know, I had some bad thinking just about myself, everything. I didn't find myself worthy of value, mm -hmm. all of those things, plus treating others in a nasty way and being bitchy, to be honest, and aggressive. Mm -hmm. And then changing that and be becoming, listen, I'm not perfect, but much kinder, much sweeter mm -hmm. most of the time. Right. You know? Well, yeah, I mean, that's funny because you have to change, I mean, and follow spiritual principles because if you don't, then you're just kind of a dry drunk in a way, mm -hmm. a prey to misery and depression, mm -hmm. can't control our emotional natures, all of those things, so. Yeah, do you remember when I was losing my temper at three years sober and I like couldn't control it? Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. I also remember coming to see you when you worked at that place on over the bridge and you were like, no, oh. okay. And you were like, I'm going back to New Jersey. And you were, I think I brought you some cigarettes or something. Yeah. And you were like crying. It's I like think you gave me some money too. That little recovery job. Yeah. yeah. And you were so down and out. And I was like, stay the course. I was like, You're can I be fine. Your massager facial? Yeah. That was my job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I remember that. Um, but I was barely making any money. I, I like, I couldn't even shop at the supermarket it was so it was a hard beginning i know and you look at you now and i've seen so many people in that situation and i always say like, my friend talk call, call my friend irene she did it it's hard in the beginning it's so hard but it's so worth it yeah i just i picked up a medallion up in karen pa this weekend and um it was magical it was a magical experience and one of the things I said to people, like, you have a, they say life beyond your wildest dreams. First of all, I would never have dreamt of this life. Mm -hmm. uh, it wouldn't have been appealing to me before, number one. Interesting. Even though, you know, I have all the blessings and it's so much better than what I pictured myself dying in a disco pretty much, right? Because <laughs> you don't really end up in the disco, yeah. you end up on the aerobed. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but, but really is that like the way I feel nowadays, even though I know I might go through some dark stuff, like I recently was in a, in a, in a sad mood. Mm -hmm, me too, and, I can relate. Yeah, and still my feeling is like, what's going to happen next? Yeah. You know, I'm so excited for the future because even when it's, it's depressing or a little bad, it still gets me through to like another level, you know, mm -hmm. and another level of happiness, another level of working on myself, another level of helping others, whatever it may be. And it feels good. I mean, I know. What would life be without a little adversity? Wouldn't it be a bit boring? Well, you, if everything went so smoothly all the time, how would we even know joy if everything was so perfect all the time? I well, feel like exactly adversity makes us so grateful for the good times. So Absolutely. And, and, and the gratitude that you talk about, the gratefuls, I love that. Mm -hmm. Gratitude is so important. I right. tell you know, people I work with and, you know, just friends and supports in in the in this area especially um that gratitude is key gratitude. it's one of our many tools in our little toolkit for yeah. sure yeah i remember when i was trying to learn about that toolkit 
And I was like, what are they talking about? Tools in a toolkit? I was like, just tell me what to do, you right. know? So I did. I played follow the leader. You you told me to do, and then slowly everything kind of clar got clarified when they needed to be, mm -hmm. like when it needed to happen. Right. I mean, and it's also laid out very clear directions. Yeah. In the literature, but. If you actually do the work. Right. Yeah, true. You know, people I mean, don't want to. People right. got to follow the rules. Unfortunately, the rules. you know, it's it, it I wish it was as easy as I'm not going to drink, so I won't drink, but if you're a real alcoholic like me, mm, I need more than that. You know, I need more than just like saying I'm not going to drink. I need the toolkit. I need mm -hmm. meetings. I need all that stuff. And that's me. And and that may not, again, other people have other roads to recovery, but that's for me. And I know that's for you. And you introduced mm -hmm. me to this world. And I find it magical. Right. I mean, stopping drinking is but a beginning. If you don't pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet, you're going to be pretty miserable and unhappy. You're just going to become really dry. Mm-hmm. So, exactly. I mean, stopping drinking is not all we do. There's a long period of reconstruction after that. Absolutely. Better yeah. people, better reactions. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not flipping people off in traffic anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. So, I mean, yeah. So is that your essential kind of recipe for success? Helping people, picking up girls still, you know, um, uh, what else would you say is really, I know you do a lot of sports too. Do you feel like that helps you with other things like that, you know, whether it's anxiety or whatever else may come up for you? Well, if you had to ask me what my recipe for success is, as far as staying sober, it's a number of things, you know, um, I'm a real creature of routine habit. Mm -hmm. So I start my day every day the same, you know, when I, my head hits the pillow, I'm always like, thank you, great spirit for another day of sobriety. I always say, my, you know, watch over my family, watch over, you know, my cats. Um, but I pray for the world at large, too. You know, when I'm out in the world, I'm a human being and treat people kindly and drive politely. And um, and then when I wake up, I always wake up with a smile and um, I start my day the same every day. You know, I go outside and say my little prayers for everyone and the world at large. And I wish for peace on earth and goodwill to men because everything that's going on, because sometimes I get caught in this little bubble of South Florida and I'm like, wow, there's a whole world out there, right. you know? Um, and then I pick people up. Um, right now I'm currently on a roll with a lot of uh, immersion girls. Yeah, I'm going there tomorrow yeah. actually with you to yeah. speak there. That's an amazing, immersion is an incredible place. Mm -hmm. I had some immersion girls over for movie night Friday yeah. night. Yeah. Um, so I'll pick them up. Um, I want to go to movie night. I know, it was cute. <laughs> they were just fresh out of there, actually just moved into a halfway house. And um, and then I go to my meet, I t we go to our meeting. That's how we start our day, 7 a.m. Spiritual breakfast. We get our spiritual breakfast. We fellowship. We laugh. We joke around. We're out in the parking lot being crazy, talking about sports, movies, whatever. And then we go inside and listen to the message. We share the message of experience, strength, and hope. We don't share the mess. We share the message. We leave there. I bring people home. And then um, I usually, I meet with girls and take them through the program of recovery. Um, right now, I currently have seven active sponsees. I don't know um, how you do that. And not all women. A, lot of, a couple gay guys sprinkled in there, and they're adorable. Um, 
And then, you know, all the people I have helped, they in turn help others. So it's this spreading out effect. That's pretty cool. And yeah, totally. It's, it's like, really... it's amazing. Like if you help five people and they help five people and then they help five people, because I look at it as, you know, we're in the midst of this huge fentanyl um, epidemic mm. and more fentanyl has actually killed more young people than the Vietnam war currently. Um, and it's really scary and it's actually car fentanyl now is the new thing. Um, so anyway, um, that's how I spend my days and I practice, I bring spiritual principles into my home occupations and affairs. You know, I don't just go to a meeting and be all happy in a meeting and then go out and like flip people off while I'm driving or be rude to the waitress or impolite to the checkout girl at the boys when I'm going for my apples or whatever, you know, I treat people kindly and with respect and, um, I apologize when wrong and, um, I try and be a good communicator. Yeah, I have humility. Like, I'm able to admit, hey, I don't need to win a useless argument today. I was wrong, you know. And even if I if I think I'm right, I'm like, yeah, you might be right. Who cares? Like, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's easy to, you know, be of service and give people rides and help all these women. But if you're not practicing spiritual principles, I keep a conscious contact with the great spirit of the universe all day. Mm-hmm. If a parking spot comes up, I'm like, oh my God, thank you. You know me spirit. and my parking right? gods. I get, yeah, I'm really totally. lucky with the parking gods. Right. So, you know, that's what I do. That is what I do. And um, I have a really strong gratitude practice when I'm washing my face at night and hot water's coming out of the faucet. I'm like, Phew, I'm pretty rich. I've got yeah. hot water coming out of my faucet right now. Absolutely. After I lived Come on. in Peru and I right. saw, like, first of all, I was poisoned by the water. I know I say water in a weird way, but, you know, and I saw people traveling for miles just to come get a job and selling herbs along the way. And I haven't traveled everywhere, right? But that experience makes me so grateful for, like, light, (laughs) you know, electricity, Wi-Fi. How about bombs not being rained down on you right now? Absolutely. But half the world doesn't have have Wi-Fi. Middle America doesn't have Wi-Fi. And sometimes I I wonder why, you know. Right. Like we we just live in this privileged world. And, you know, when people complain, I'm like, including me, I tell myself to shut up because it's it's actually quite disgusting, you know, when I'm rolling my eyes because I have to go to Whole Foods. I'm like, oh, you poor thing. You have to go to Whole Foods because, you know, who wants to grocery shop, right? But you get to go in and buy anything we want. This is East Germany in the 80s. So anyway, just all of that is what I do, um, and hopefully I'll do it all tomorrow again, you know, helping yeah. others, and I'm actually meeting three sponsees tomorrow back-to-back. I like that you said apologize when wrong, but I want to follow that up with okay. if if there's no action behind it, right? Like, I could say I'm sorry, but then if I keep doing the same nasty thing to you the next day, how many sorries till it's like, all right, well, are you really sorry, you know? So the fact that we actually take action, it's an action. Mm -hmm. This whole thing is like taking action, doing things for other people, not just saying you're going to do it, not just saying you're, you're, you're sorry, but showing the sorry with, with, um, your personality with the way you communicate with them and showing them like, I really want to fix this. I don't want to be that way, you know? Right. Well, demonstrating, demonstrating these principles in all our affairs. Yeah. You know, I feel like talk is a bit cheap. Well, you taught me that, you know, that talking is not, is not enough, that Mm -hmm. we really have to actually like 
what did I do right today? You know, what did I do today that right. was good and, and helpful? A little nighttime inventory. Yeah. Do I owe anybody an apology? Absolutely. Did I treat everyone kindly and with respect? Um, and then conscious contact, of course, you know, yeah. some sort of higher power. And I love meditation. Personally, yeah. for me, that's been pivotal to my anger, pivotal to re okay. my reactiveness. You know, I struggled a lot with that when I first got sober. Mm -hmm. I would just lash out at people. Um, but meditating really helps, you know, it's it's hard to be, it, we're not perfect all the time, but that's why there is an apology and that's why there is new action to mm -hmm. take after that, you know? Right. And I think it's important for people to know that we mess up, but we make it right, you know? And, and anyone can do that. We are not saints, right? We are not saints. Right. I said I'd get sober. I didn't say I'd become a saint. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, so true, you know. And then, of course, helping someone else. That's what yeah. it's all about. It doesn't have to be... That's my favorite part. It doesn't have to be um, sponsoring either. It could be giving someone a ride, giving some homeless guy this a granola bar. Yeah, this giving, podcast. Giving someone hope who is maybe sitting at home and either can't afford rehab or can't... but can reach out, can comment to this and ask for advice or, right. you know, um, there are so many resources online. You can go to meetings at different clubhouses across America. If you look up 12-step meetings, mm -hmm. you can find the right one for you. Um, if that's your goal, if that's your, that's your path, you know. Um, and then there's also people who kind of hear the fact that you're a mother, you have kids. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. You know, better version of yourself i'm sure as a mother as well of course and, and your kids love you today they come and being able to to share that mm -hmm. like with your kids yeah that's really cool on especially for the kids yeah like seeing their mother change and kind of seeing them grow you're like you're really proud of them and you're just grateful that you get to like see them change and be a part of that it's beautiful it's it's really cool I know getting sober is the greatest thing I've ever accomplished in my life, you know? It's hard, too. Because I wouldn't be able to be there if I didn't have my sobriety. So it wouldn't matter. So, yeah, thank you for saying that. Yeah. Everyone has a mother, too. I mean, whether they're with them or not, like, we all came from a mother, so it's, like, a yeah. very sensitive place. Uh, in, in it's always going to be attached to you, and if you were abandoned at birth, or that's the primal wound, or even adoption, believe it or not, even if you're fine and you grew up in a great family, that's still the primal wound because we're so mm -hmm. attached, literally. Like, we have to be cut off from each other. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. pretty badass, I think. Yeah, women are badass. <laughs> Nancy is definitely a beacon of hope for many women. And mm -hmm. when I say that she's probably helped over a million people, I can say that with confidence. She helps seven women at a time constantly and more women by just speaking at places mm -hmm. and listening to people when they reach out to you. And then those people, again, it grows exponentially. Mm -hmm. So that exponential growth is infinite. Yeah, it's really cool. And all the women you've helped, too. I mean, Because, it's, you know, you helped right. me, and then I looked at all the service you do, and I said, wow, that kind of makes her happy. I'm going to try it. And it really does. That's what makes me happy the most. Right, because it takes us out of ourselves. Yeah. You're actually thinking about someone else for a change. 
not your own little thoughts and plans. And going out of your way to help someone, that's really spiritual for me. It's easy to be all spiritual when it's convenient, right? Mm. What about when life is inconvenient? Foxhole prayers. Please, God, please do this for me. Or you have to go out of your way to pick someone up and you really don't feel like it. That's so spiritual, you know? Yeah. That's doing that's doing God's work right there. Like really just going out of your way when you'd rather just go to go to the beach or go to a movie or stay home with whatever, you know, it's just so it's mm-hmm. really that's being God's secret agent. I love that. That's Thank you so scary. much. Yeah, it was really fun. So I want to ask you something. Sure. If there's anything you could tell your younger self and you can pick the age. Okay. Uh, what would it, what age would it be? And what would you tell your younger self? I would tell my younger self, don't do drugs. (laughs) Um, no, I don't know. I would just probably tell my younger self to love yourself, forgive yourself, be kind to yourself. You know, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. We're so hard on ourselves. Right. You know, um, yeah, I'm still really hard on myself. So yeah. Progress. Yeah. Love yourself. Share, value yourself. It's so important. It's a question that you wish people would ask more. Oh, yeah, you love that question. I love that question. A question I wish people would ask more. Ask you more. Um, hmm. Uh, that's a tough one. Maybe, um, I wish people maybe would ask, how would you change the world if you could? Maybe? Make it better? How would you change the world if you could? Yeah. Make it better. I'm asking you. Um, spread light and love around the world, of course. Be a good person because there's a lot of negativity, mm-hmm. just warring factions and all of that and mm-hmm. religious disputes and all of that and um, just unnecessary cruelty. Yeah. So, you know, the way we can counteract that is just to be like a beacon of light and love and mm-hmm. just spread as much positivity as we can. It's a ripple to fight, effect. To fight evil because there still is evil. Oh, yeah. Um, and I just, yeah, I just need to just bring as much light and love and peace on earth and goodwill to men, right? We need that. Yeah. And pet a dog. Yeah. 